I'm a little OCD, so having that light ride in the middle is all right with me. Oh, uh, let's see. I asked to Acts chapter number uh, three, and we're going to continue where we've uh, been going through the book of Acts, and we've. Uh, this is the second sermon that we'll see Peter preach in Acts, and we've been going verse by verse. Last week we kind of talked about a big idea from a passage, but turn with me there to Acts chapter three, and we're going to resume uh, where we were last time. And a very interesting passage of Scripture and a very interesting, compelling sermon that Peter has given that I think ties in very well with the idea of celebrating communion, which we'll do today. Acts chapter 3, uh, beginning there with verse number 11. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people came, uh, came, ran together to them in the porch which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go but you denied the holy one and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead of which excuse me we are witnesses in his name through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know yes the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did your rulers, as also did your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, And that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall come to pass that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these things. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying in Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. God, thank you for the Bible. We are blessed through your word. We're blessed through the assurance that you loved us and gave us a record and account of your mind and heart and will. And so we pray today as we look at scripture that you'll make it alive in our ears and hearts. God, give us the willingness to obey you. God, give us the desire within ourselves to uh, 
to live out scripture and to be people of faith who are a witness to you in our families and in our in our lives. God, we pray today that you'll cleanse us and forgive us in ways that we fail. God, give us attentiveness. God, give us a worship and desire to draw near to you. And we pray that your spirit will do the work that he alone is able uh, to do. And we commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. We in uh, the first sermon that we saw by Peter, it was prompted by a question and uh, an issue, problem. So is this one. The first time was the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes and the people of uh, the prophets, the apostles speak and preach and everyone hears in their own language. And uh, the people that have gathered to listen say, these men must be drunk. And Peter says, no, we're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m., And so he preaches to clarify their misconception about what was happening when the Spirit of God came. In this situation, a lame man who has never walked in his entire life has been lifted up by Peter and healed and he stands to his feet. And the people come together and they're amazed at what they see. And so Peter preaches to them to clarify this problem in their minds. Who's responsible for this? Peter says, it's not us, it's Jesus. And then he tells them a very pointed uh, message, preaches to them this pointed message about, about Jesus, the one who, with, as we said before, within months of this event had been crucified right there in their city in Jerusalem by their leaders and by the Romans. And so Peter preaches on this moment of expectation and wonder to clarify to them an issue that's important. He could have said, okay, you've seen this lame man healed. I want you to go get all of the sick and the lame and the infirm, and I want you to bring them here, and we're going to heal them all. But that's not what he did. He, what he did instead is speak to a need that is universally true and, and needed in every person's life. He takes them to the heart of every person's matter. And he drills down into that in preaching the Messiah, Jesus, who had come. I've encountered at least a couple of times in my life people who had near-death experiences. And as they related to me the, the idea of like what that meant to them, they would say this, that I know that God spared me for a reason. I've had people tell me that. I know God spared me for a reason. But in their mind, as I talked with them, it felt like that they, they, they were saying something heroic. There's something heroic that God spared me for. But I thought, the truth is, God's will for everybody at first is exactly identical, and it is that you receive eternal life as a free gift. If you are still living and breathing, God's will for you is that you receive eternal life as a free gift, that you receive Jesus and that's the, what Peter, when he thought, all of the things that I could say as a result of this miracle, that's what he said, is that everybody needs Jesus. Even people that won't acknowledge that that's their need. They have a less obvious, more important concern beyond physical safety and healing. And so that's where this message comes to us as we think about, I'm going to let the secret out in the very beginning. I titled the message, Everyone's Secret Need. Well, your secret need is that you need Jesus. That's it. You're like, we can go home now. 
Now, we'll stick around and see what Peter said here, but everyone needs first to connect the dots to Jesus because when they, the people are expecting some new information or insight from Peter, he says, look, this man was not raised as a result of us. He was raised because of who Jesus is, because there's a living Savior who raised him up. And so Jesus, the crucifixion has occurred and the resurrection and the ascension have already happened and so we see what's happening here. Jesus, Peter says, healed the lame man, not us. He said, we didn't do it, it was Jesus. And that's always a good posture for anybody is that when people in our life want to know what's different about you, what is it about you that's unique? Well, we want to point people to Jesus, the one who brings transformation. And in the passage, one thing that you can see is that there's a movement behind this miracle. The miracle mattered. Of course it mattered to the man who's healed. We talked about before that the, for him, his existence was like this. Some friends, some family members, somebody that loved and cared about him came every day and picked him up and took him to the gate so that he could beg. You know, we see people all the time, like if you go to Savannah with signs on uh, street corners and making their livelihood by asking people to give them a handout. And, of course, we don't ever know their motives. We know this guy's motive. This guy could not work. This guy was doing what he could do. And radically, instantly, his life was changed because Peter saw him there and says, what, silver and gold I don't have? I don't have anything to give to you, but what I do have, I, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He says, stand up and walk. And immediately... The Bible says he got strength in his feet and his ankles and he began leaping and worshiping. He, and immediately he connected the dots, right? He saw that this physical healing mattered, but what really mattered was directing his life in worship toward God. He got it just like that. But the people around are, have misgivings or don't, they need some clarity. Just like everybody, what's life about? Undeniably, something extraordinary has happened. But what does it mean? That's the question. They, they had observed this guy. They saw him. There was no doubt that the majority of people who could see this man now knew that he had previously been crippled for his entire life. He had been unable to walk and stand until now. They knew that. They just didn't know the whole backstory of what God was up to in that healing. And what the miraculous sign pointed to and what it pointed to was this need that even if we are fully able-bodied, even if we feel like we don't need anything, this is still what we need. That's why Peter preached this message that has an application to everybody in the world at all times. We see that God is capable of changing a person's life in an instant. The miracle of healing for this guy, but he's able to do the same thing in our life through the miracle of forgiveness and redemption. In an instant, he can take a life that's destined for hell. He can take a life of alienation and isolation and hopelessness and inject into that life hope. I, I like the human parts of this story, like when I'm reading verse 11 He's a little wobbly. Do you notice that? Like Peter and John have to kind of help the guy. You know how babies, like this guy's never walked before. 
I like that human part of the story that it's like they grab him by the arms and they're helping him as he as he gets used to being able to walk. That's what it looks like to to me. And I thought, you know, that's a good analogy about life in spiritual community too. When we're learning to walk, we need people that will come alongside us and take us by the elbow and help us along. Isn't that the beautiful truth about what God does when he gives us a church family, when he gives us community? That's how it's meant to be. When I came to faith in Christ, Frankie and I was 24 years old, and I can think about all the people in my church family. That was a a solid church that we came to faith in Christ in that discipled us. They put us, I've said before, in uncomfortable situations sometimes so that we could learn how to be servants of Christ. Threw us in the deep end of the pool. But oftentimes, too, they were just people that were alongside us to uh, help us and reinforce what we were learning and uh, discipling. It happens in community. Discipleship is the idea of learning and internalizing spiritual truth so that we're able to flesh it out and live it out in all of the situations that we're going to encounter. And I love that part of the story. I like how the scripture says in the book of Psalms that he... um, that God knows our frames. He knows that we're dust. There's a kind of a weakness built into the human condition that requires help beyond ourselves. God knows what, we've been, what we're like, how we're made. And so there's this movement behind the miracle, and then there's meaning behind that, the miracle that occurs where Peter uh, diverts attention away from himself. And so anybody that is ever in a situation of leading... Egoism is a great detriment to spirituality and spiritual leadership. You know, people get platformed, and it's really easy to think how great we are and stuff like that. But what Peter does is he says, I'm nothing. That's what Jesus said, too, in John 15, 5. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in them produces fruit. He says, but apart from me, you can do nothing. And Peter sees that. He says, this isn't because of me. It's because of Jesus. And in the passage, we see that God is amazing. And we shouldn't be surprised that sometimes that amazing aspect of who God is is put on display for us. What you hear people say, uh, God showed up and showed off. You know, it's good when God shows up and shows off. I was talking to a friend yesterday that was talking about how Sometimes just in the tiny things that he shows up at a place where he needs encouragement and the person not knowing anything about his needs speaks exactly into his life what was needed in the moment. And it's just a way that God in his grace personalizes our faith and understands us and knows what we need and God's amazing. And they didn't lose sight of that in the early church. They kept drilling into that belief of how great God was, showing up and showing off. and All the good that happens in our life has Jesus as its source. That's what the Bible teaches. Do people always acknowledge it or see it? No. I mean, I remember having a conversation with a person one time and talking about, I've shared before that God rescued me out of some brokenness, out of addiction and uh, excess when I was 24 years old I spent about six years just being stupid and at the end of the stupidity when God interrupted me and I was able to repent and turn to him and I shared my testimony with people they would say 
You know, I, I remember sharing my testimony, and the person said, well, I did all that without God. And I thought about that, and I thought, no, you just did all that without acknowledging God. That's what you actually did, because the Scripture says this. It says every good and perfect gift is from above, comes down from the uh, Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. So anything good in our life, anything good that God would call good, came from God. And it's for God and about God. And so people sometimes don't acknowledge that, but it's still the truth. And the reluctance of people to connect the dots to God is just evidence of spiritual blindness. Here's what the Bible says about that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God, should shine on them. So it's saying that there are humans in this condition of blindness, spiritual blindness. Their eyes aren't open. And so they're not going to ascribe good things to God even though they come from God. And we connecting the dots is important. And that's what Peter is helping them do in this narrative today. He's showing them this is how God was at work in the healing of this man and in the story that God wanted them to hear and understand. There's, I don't know how many of you know Andrew Peterson's music. He's one of my favorite uh, Christian writers, and he's such a talented person. He's the kind of person that makes you jealous, you know, artistically gifted and musically unbelievably talented. I've seen him in concert a couple of times, and I'm always just impressed with his humility and the insight that God's given him. But he's got a song that's based on who Peter was. And he, part of the lyrics say, I've seen too much. I've seen too, too many uh, faces all shining like the sun. I've seen too many skies on fire like the face of the Holy One. I've seen too many eyes wide open that once were so blind, all burning with beauty of the same love, the same love that opened mine. I love that. I love the song because it, it's a... Describe somebody who's struggling but who's like, wait a minute. You know, even though sometimes life is difficult, I'm going to meditate on the things that I've seen from God. I'm going to go back and remember in my story that God has been faithful again and again all the way through. He says, I've seen too much. I'm not going to turn away. I'm not going to turn back. How could I based on God's goodness? Everybody needs to connect the dots, but also everybody needs to see themselves in the passion narrative. That's what he preaches to this audience. The passion, the, the Jesus' suffering, which was uh, uh, told to us through the prophets. That's what he, it, it, I like studying the message that he preached because it helps us see how the apostles preached. And what they did was go to the Old Testament prophets and say, look, there's Jesus. Here's Jesus. God didn't stumble onto anything. He was telling a story all the way through that was forethought and planned because God is wise and before everything and everyone. And Jesus is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the earth. God knew when people fell that there was going to be a need for recovery and restoration and forgiveness. And all the way through, Hundreds of years, thousands of years before Jesus was ever a historical person, God in human flesh, God already had purposed everything that he was going to do to rescue people 
and to bring hope into our lives. So we need to see ourselves in this uh, passion narrative. I love the old uh, spiritual song we usually hear around Easter season, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? That song. Were you there when the sun refused to shine? What's the writer saying in the song? You were there. That's what he's saying. Yes, you were there. You were there when they crucified my Lord. I was there. In his crucifixion, we, we all are there. That's what Peter is saying. He blames them for what's happened. Again, it's the only reason a person would do this is Holy Spirit boldness. The Holy Spirit has filled Peter. He knows that these people in the audience crucified Jesus, and he stands up and he says, you did this to them. But you know what else he says? You did this to them. I did this. That's what else he's saying. Because we're there in this narrative. We're there in Jesus' betrayal. He talks about the fact that Jesus is betrayed in verse 13. He says, God, uh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. You who? Well, this group of people, many of them who would have been there for that event or who knew about it, who were influenced, who thought, who thought the same way about those, the incident, who were still going to the temple but with no knowledge of Christ. He says that's who this is about. This is about the them, but it's not only about them. He says, you denied the Holy One and just and asked for a murderer to be granted you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. So every sermon they preach is heavily about the resurrection. And he says, there's only one God who's consistently been telling the story uh, uh, through the progress of humanity. That's why he says the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that God the very same God who in the beginning created the heaven and the earth, the same God who made people and put them on the earth, the same God that was there in the garden when the brokenness and fall of humanity occurred, the same God who's telling this human story, the same God that through two people put people all over the face of the earth until now there are eight billion of them. And however many nations there are, hundreds and hundreds of nations, That same God, he says, this is the God who uh, gave to us Jesus, who became man, who lived among us. And so in Jesus' betrayal, he's placing them in this story. He said, the scripture says, he honored his son whom his own people betrayed. That's what happened. Jesus was uh, Israelite. Jesus was born tribe of Judah. Jesus was born to a Jewish family, circumcised the eighth day the way they did. And so when we look at what the scripture says, I I put this in here, it's so fascinating when you read Psalm 2 to think about this event or to think about the events that led up to the crucifixion. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Which is basically saying this is what's in the heart of all people, at least initially, is the idea that we are going to live self-directed lives, that we're rebels, 
that we live life and we decide we're going to be the person directing and live in charge of our life. That's the natural situation that people are born into. And they, they live in until God intervenes. But this is the attitude that he, the psalm writer hundreds and hundreds of years before identified as the very same culture and environment that was prevalent when Jesus came in the first century and was crucified. This was the thinking that was manifest in the leaders. They just had the power to be able to do something with it, and they did. And they think, we're getting rid of this pest, Jesus. That's what they thought they were doing. Let's break the bonds in pieces. This is how God responds. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision because God knows better. God knows that what God is doing is going to hold sway. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And he says, Jesus is enthroned as king. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is all messianic. We saw this in Hebrews, if you remember, because the writer in Hebrews says, hey, he's talking about Jesus here. You're my son, today I've begotten you. Don't be confused about the word begotten. Sometimes people are. It doesn't mean made. It doesn't mean that he came into existence. The pre-existent, eternal God put on flesh. That's what begotten means. Had a human history. His birth date as a human. That's what it's talking about. Today I've begotten you. And it's just telling us the gospel stories. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, it's telling people how to respond. Be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Pay homage. That's what it's saying. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. I love to read that psalm in view of what's happening in this story. Because it it just, let the Bible explain the Bible. That's what we're doing. The Bible shows you that Jesus Christ is who the psalm writer was talking about hundreds and hundreds of years before. And that a wise person, when it says kiss the son, it means surrender. Lay down your rebellion. Show affectionate worship to this, the, the one who is the Son. It, it says in John's gospel, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. That's what we're, we're, Peter is saying in this passage. This is what happened. Jesus came. This is how you responded to him. You didn't receive God's king. And he's, Jesus threatened the established religious order of his day to the point that they schemed to eliminate him. That's what he says in his message. Pilate was determined to release Jesus, and the crowd demanded that he, he release a notorious murderer. We think about who Barabbas was, an insurrectionist, a murderer. Peter and the apostles and everybody in the first century would have known that better than anyone. It's like us reading the paper about some contemporary thing. They knew Barabbas. They knew his character. They said, this is who he is. He was a a murderer. But God is not thwarted. 
His purposes prevailed even though it appeared that darkness was having its moment. That's what it looks like is going on. God is so perfect and powerful that he can accomplish his will even through people who are intent on following their own heart. Isn't that interesting? Because here's what God wanted. God wanted Barabbas to be released too. God also wanted Barabbas to be released and Jesus to be crucified. That was God's plan. These people think we're getting what we want, but in reality, the subtext is God's getting what God wants. God is the one deciding. And we know that that is a picture of the sovereign reality of God's power. Not that he manipulates, I guess in some way, God is operating in a way that his outcome is happening supernaturally. God's not thwarted. God takes the foolishness of people and he turns it into redemption. And that's what we see in that passage. God's generosity caused the release of a murderer so that his son would be sacrificed in the place of Barabbas and in our place as well. That's what the story is trying to show us. Jesus' death permits us all to experience a similar acquittal. We are just like Barabbas. Barabbas was acquitted, right? He was, even though he was guilty, he was found not guilty. That's redemption. People who are guilty found not guilty because Jesus stepped in and did the job that we can't do. He took the, he, he became for us what God required in righteousness. So this story, this narrative is telling us exactly how salvation works and how God was at work. We need to see ourselves in this passion narrative and we were there in this crisis of belief because he's gonna, he tells them, here's what you have to do. He had already told the first group that he preached to because they asked, what should we do? What must we do? And he tells them to repent and put their faith in Jesus and he says the same thing here. There's this crisis that's occurring that you have to respond appropriately. Look at verse 15. You killed the prince of life. Think about the words there. They didn't know it. It says, whom God raised from the dead, we're witnesses of that. His name through faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, he says, I know that you did it in ignorance as also did your rulers. He gives them an out. He says, you did this ignorantly. Satan knew who Jesus was for sure. He knew that Jesus was the prince of life, the architect, the creator. That's what it's saying. Jesus is creator. All, th- all things came through him. Without him, there's nothing created that came to be. That's what John says in John 1. But we must assume that the people of Jesus' uh, generation didn't know what they were doing. And Jesus prayed. you remember how Jesus prayed? He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, that was his prayer. Forgive them, for they don't understand what they're doing. So... They're caught up in a cosmic battle. They don't know it. It's not obvious to them, but that's what God says is happening. They're caught up in a cosmic battle because they behaved ignorantly. They could still repent. That's what Peter preaches to them. Even though you were complicit in Jesus' death, you can still repent, he says. There is still hope. 
If we don't understand grace any other way, that should help us understand grace. That's what it is in a nutshell. Even though humans were the cause of Jesus' death, we can still repent. Even because it happened because of our rebellion. And we saw last week, uh, Romans 5.12 says that uh, sin came into the uh, world by one man and by sin, death, and death spread to all because all sinned. So we can't say, hey, that was Adam, not me, because the Bible says it wasn't just Adam, it was you too. Because all have sinned, because all rebel, because all of us missed the mark. And so this is their turning point, and it's one that all people need. The Bible says in Acts chapter 17, which we'll get to eventually, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Same thing Peter says here, Paul says later when he preaches at Mars Hill, Mars Hill in Athens, Greece. Same thing. God's telling us the same story all the way through. He says, what you have done in ignorance. Ignorance is only an excuse until you get information. And then it's not an excuse anymore. And Peter says, look, I'm giving you the information that you need. And so consequently, ignorance is no longer an excuse you can use. It's not a way you can rationalize away your guilt and your need to respond to Christ. He says, now you know, and a person who knows, the Bible says to him that knows to do right and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. That's what James says. So now we know, and if you know, you're responsible. That's what the Bible says. That's what the apostle is preaching here. He says, you did it ignorantly, but now the time of ignorance is over, and it's the time of response. It's the time to repent. And it's time to, be, uh, to act. And so then also the passage shows us that everyone needs the redemption God has thoughtfully and deliberately delivered. That's what the remainder of the passage is about. Everybody needs this redemption that God has thoughtfully, deliberately delivered. God, Jesus is God's promised Messiah, the answer, the Christ, the anointed one. He was the one that the prophets were telling about, and that's what Peter does. He goes back to the prophets. The evidence compellingly says that Jesus is the awaited Messiah. And so the Messiah, when we learn about him, was, it was predicted that he would suffer. And that's fulfilled in Jesus. And that's what he says in verse 18. Those things which were foretold. And you say, well, where do you find that? Well, in the Old Testament, the most obvious places that we see that this, the Messiah would suffer, Isaiah 53. When you read Isaiah 53, it reads basically like an account of everything that happened at the cross. And so does Psalm 22. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Psalm 34, 20. In fact, when Jesus is on the cross, what we see is that he quotes these psalms uh, from the cross at times. They're, the words that are in the psalmist uh, writing come out of Jesus' mouth historically as an application of, the, of what, it, what was happening. And also, read, when you read the Gospels, and pay attention to each time the writer cite an Old Testament prophecy and make application to Jesus the Messiah, we see that they're saying the prophets said this would happen. And then it did happen in, in Jesus' experience. 
The evidence that Jesus is Messiah demands an appropriate response, and that's he's appealing to them. He is saying to them, now this is what you have to do. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And so uh, this is what the Bible says. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. When it says here that your sins can be blotted out, that's the message. How far is the east from the west? It's an idiom that is meant to say, you know, they never meet. They start this way, they go that way. And as far as space would go in your imagination, east and west are it's, you're not thinking about traveling the planet till you run back into east again. No, that's not the image. The image is that these two things will never run into one another. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And in another place, the Bible says in uh, the book of Colossians he, that having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's what Jesus did. It says he wiped away the handwriting of offenses. He cleansed it. He blotted it out, as the scripture says here, from uh, your account and from my account so that our names could be written down in, in the Lamb's book of life indelibly. That's how God works. He takes Jesus' sacrifice, his innocence, the beauty of his holiness, and he puts it over our sin, and he brings justification and cleansing and forgiveness and peace. And this is the gospel that the apostles preach to uh, their audience. And so repentance means irrefutable change. When we believe and repent, God wipes the record of our offenses clean. So Think about that. Repentance means irrefutable change. In other words, observable, tangible. When somebody, we think about how do we know if faith is real in our life? Because there's been a change of direction. Because there's been something that others observe. We call it a witness. We call it a testimony. But other people know that in our life where we were headed one way, we're headed another way. It's not only in our life, it's in our mouth, right? It's on our behavior. It's why I keep saying like leaving home and coming to church to worship with other people is a very fundamental way that we acknowledge to other people that we're following Jesus. A basic way, a way. But an important one. But in many ways in our lives, repentance means that there is proof. Repent, turn to God and do works which give evidence of repentance. It's not what we do in our own strength or power. It's what God begins to do in the life of an authentically uh, converted person. That's what the Bible is showing us. And so the evidence also that Jesus is Messiah means there's only one pathway to God. And that's what the writer shows us in verses 20 through 23 in this passage, that he may send you Jesus who is preached before whom heaven and, uh, must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the war began. And what this is not talking about, this is talking about one singular human event, one singular human movement, that there aren't many different religious ways that the world and judgment and 
reconciliation workout. God is working one single thing that we've got to get on board with. To the restoration of all things, he says, when God consummates the world and brings history uh, to a conclusion. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. And he says, this is who we're preaching, Jesus. And it shall come to pass that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from the people. How many souls It does it say? Every soul, that's what it says. Every soul who won't hear this prophet, what prophet? Jesus, because that's who Moses was talking about, shall be utterly destroyed, it says. Shall be cut off from God's life, is what it says. And so, I I loved uh, how Isaiah expressed this. This is the way the prophet put the same idea uh, hundreds and hundreds of years before. He says, a highway shall be there in a road and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a, a fool shall not go astray. That's an encouraging thought, isn't it? Even if you're a fool, if you get on this road, and you're jostled along with other people, and God is upholding you, you'll get to your destination. But it's the same thing that the apostles said in Acts 4.12, where they said, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's the same thing Jesus said in John 14.6 when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. There's no other approach to God except for what God did in Jesus. That is the testimony of Scripture and the apostles. And the evidence that Jesus is Messiah satisfies the biblical prophetic expectations that you you can see in the remainder of this passage that he says all the prophets from Samuel as many uh, and those who follow as many have spoken have foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets in the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's Jesus. That's prophecy about Christ. To you first, God, having raised up his servant, Jesus sent him to bless you and turning you, everyone, away from your iniquity. So the scripture is saying that what all everything God had been promising came to its culmination in Jesus. It was credibly laid out in the Bible. Anybody can read the Bible and see that life is not random, can see that God has been purposeful. It's not an accident. And he has been moving us to this place where his son came, even if it was sometimes messy. If you read the book of Genesis and you see the patriarchs and you see all the things that happened to Israel, it was messy. But God got us to this place where Jesus came to turn everyone away from their iniquities. Psalm 106 is a chronicle of Israel's waywardness and God's kind faithfulness. And it's there to show us this is the disposition of people. We're no different than they were. And that psalm says this in part. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. Nevertheless, he regarded their distress when he heard their cry. I was reading a devotional this week from Eugene Peterson, who is a favorite writer of mine. He says, uh, we connect cause and effect with a therefore. God connects them with a nevertheless. The logical consequence of sin is damnation. The gospel consequence is salvation. 
Nevertheless is one of the most important words in Scripture, for it miraculously joins human sin with God's salvation. Isn't that a beautiful thought? That what God did is he goes, yes, it's true about you that you've broken my law. It's true about you that you've been a rebel. It's true about you that you've chosen your way and not my way. Nevertheless, I'm offering you compassion. I'm offering you forgiveness. I'm offering you kindness. And then we respond to God. That's how our response to God is to, be, to give to God a worshiping life, a focused life of worship that is a testimony to his goodness and his forgiveness. I was talking to some unchurched friends recently about why church is maybe more difficult in our day than it has been in some time. And I said, here's what I think. I think it's because we know that we have what people need, but it's not always what they want. You know, we live in a culture full of people say, I know that that's what I need. Maybe they would say that, but it's definitely not what I want. Well, what this passage is showing us today is that this is what everyone needs. This is what everyone needs. We're going to conclude our service today with the Lord's Supper in a moment. But here's what I'd like to do. I definitely want to offer you the opportunity to respond to God's uh, salvation if you never have before. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, everybody has some intersection some turning point in their life where they say yes to God. I've shared many times I sat in church white-knuckled, holding on to the front of a chair, pew in those days, rather than just going, okay, I know this is true. Why don't I just stop being hard-headed about it? But there was a point in time where I had to say, I'm not going to be hard-headed any longer. I'm going to release my own stubbornness and trust in God's gift and his goodness. And so we're going to have a a time. Scott, we're just having music for the communion time, right? Okay. Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and and I'm going to ask you if if you would like to. I'm going to pray a prayer today, and it's a sample kind of thing because the Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what it says. So that's basic. Anybody can call on the name of the Lord. We just cry out and say, I think it's as simple as saying help. That's where I got to, is to just say help. And maybe today you'd say, this is where life finds me, just at a place where I know what I need is to say yes to God. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you then if you need to respond, just to come up quickly. I'll pray with you and set up a time to counsel following. And um, then we'll, we'll have our time of, celebrating communion together and if you would like to open your heart up to Christ you might pray something like this Heavenly Father I know that my sin has been separating me from you I believe that Jesus died for my sin I believe that he was raised from the dead for me I want to follow you and make you my Lord and my Master. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. And if today that reflects the attitude of your heart, I encourage you for just a few moments now, if you, if, uh, you would like to respond to do so, as we have an attitude of prayer.